Ernie Mullins family. Ernie passed away about 6.30 this morning. Uh, some of you may not know him all that well, but Ernie and Jean, his wife, had been attending with us for a good while. Uh, and then Ernie was diagnosed with a brain tumor and things had just really went downhill for him since then. But he passed away early this morning. And so remember them in your prayers. I know Jean is devastated and um, really, really needing to feel experientially the hopes, the hope and the promise of Christmas. Uh, and that's really striking uh, to me as well. As Brian mentioned, we'll be uh, focusing our attention on peace this morning. I was thinking about each of the, uh, the focus or the focal points of Advent. Uh, there is a sense in which the coming of Christ produces for us an experience of these things, but there is another sense in which we have not uh, experienced these things in their fullness. Uh, and part of living by faith uh, is our confidence and our growing confidence in sanctification of our full experience of each of these things. Hope uh, will be one day be f completely fulfilled, but certainly peace uh, is among those as well. Isaiah foretells of this uh, in chapter 9 of his prophecy. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, as I've already mentioned, these are uh, the things that we focus on, I believe, are promises, and we are right to do so. And Lord, as believers, they are our experience to some degree. But Lord, this morning, we ask that you might open our hearts and minds to, to behold your glory, that these things might be more fully our experience, and that our faith in the future fullness of these things might be uh, strengthened. Lord, we do remember Ernie's family and all those who are grieving this morning and others as well, though, uh, speaking to my aunt this week and who's celebrating her first Christmas apart from her husband of many years and, and the grief and the sorrow that she's feeling in the midst of what ought to be a season of joy and, and just, the, just the contradiction that seems to be for many of those. Father, I lift those like that up in prayer today. So we ask for your help. We are dependent upon you to see today clearly and to experience this peace that Jesus provides. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake and glory. Amen. Uh, I was sharing with my aunt yesterday. I didn't get the chance to talk to her at length when we gathered for our family Christmas. Uh, but I've texted her later on uh, last night and was sharing with her. And it's kind of an awkward thing to say to someone, but... Uh, while she's struggling so much to feel the spirit of Christmas, uh, that warmth and joy and intimacy and all those things that we love so much about Christmas, all the while uh, feeling deeply the absence of the one she loved most in this world, her husband. And I thought to myself, and I shared with her in my text to her that you might be in that feeling, you may be the most, the, the closest to knowing what the fullness of the peace provided at Christmas means. Of all the things that were provided in the incarnation and ultimately the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, in the, in the absence of those things, 
I think sometimes we are most open to knowing or feeling the depth of the reality of those very things. And so in some ways, she may have access at least or a capacity to experience a, a joy of Christmas that she may have never known all of her life. And so it is with us. So I wanted to speak today about peace. And so many of these things uh, are struggle for me sometimes because I think in terms of, well, how am I defining peace? And if I define that loosely or carelessly, I might be defining that peace according to, to the desires and the expectations of a fallen man whose heart cannot be trusted in and of itself. And I thought about what we probably do is we define peace in general in regards to the absence of trying circumstances in our lives. But I can tell you from personal experience, I've been in periods of my life where there were no trying circumstances, but I was far from being at peace. There was turmoil within. There was an uneasiness. There was, a, was an unsettledness within. There was, a, there was something amiss that I couldn't even identify, but I could feel it, even though outwardly all things would appear uh, without any distress whatsoever. So, so I wonder about how we even define that. So I began this morning uh, by trying to define that in a biblical way. And I come and I do that to begin with in Genesis chapter 1. Beginning in verse 26, the Word of God says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. <coughs> Excuse me. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then again in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward, uh, toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord called, caused to grow every tree that is pleasing in the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The Delam and the Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die." I read that because I think that's key to understanding what we need to understand about what peace is. Uh, I read just a secular definition of this, and one of the words, uh, definitions here I thought was appropriate was, peace is a state of tranquility or quiet, a feeling of security and harmony, the absence of enmity. Uh, that's a broad general categorization or definition of peace and I think it's helpful in some way, but I was trying to think through that in a more biblically sound way. And so this is mine, my understanding from what I understand of Scripture altogether, but it is this. And you can question this or alter this accordingly. But I wrote this there. It is a disposition of the conscience which is free of guilt arising from a continual, uninterrupted communion with our Creator, a joyful fulfilling of the purpose for which we are created. Uh, to me, that was close to what I am looking for in regards to peace. We, we were created by God. That's why I went to Genesis. I would say, okay, why am I here? And He created us in His image, male and female, 
He assigned them certain tasks in creation. In fact, the task was ultimately to exercise a dominion or a stewardship over all of creation and, in, and to cultivate the garden in which they put them. And all these things were to be done full of joy, without sin, without toil, without, without the feeling of laborsome or burdensomeness. It was to be a, a joy to act out and to fulfill perfectly the purposes for which we were created, which are ultimately to reflect the glory of the one who created us. To me, to me peace as I'm pursuing it is the peace that is that is consistent with me living out in full the purpose for which I was created. There is where I will be most, most naturally by disposition, emotion, and attitude, most naturally uh, being what I was meant to be. Anything contrary to that is warring against my peace. And so that's, that's what I mean by peace this morning. And when we jump forward in the nativity and we say that we're focusing on peace this morning in terms or in relevance or in its relevance to Christ's coming, then it must say something about Christ restoring such a peace, which, is, which we have lost and which escapes us all. In fact, I think we falter because we have learned to define peace by the absence of outward circumstances that are trying us or testing us or causing us some sort of oppression. So we, so we live our lives in pursuit of, of finding the circumstances with, in which there are no distresses. So we do that by finding right relationships or pursuing right careers or other things to try to eliminate outward difficulties which we would then define as peace. I'm at peace. My life is good. Good. But I don't think that's the peace that Jesus came to prepare us for or to prepare for us. In fact, I think the peace that he's speaking of is a peace that is present and stabilizing in us when all those circumstances are horrible all around us. That's the sort of peace I am pursuing and I have been pursuing even unwittingly in my own life. And so we look as well if peace is defined that way, then we look at peace lost. And I see that as well from Genesis 2:17, where God provides for everything. They're defined their fulfillment and their joy in communion with God, living out their lives in their proper station as creations of God, created to magna to reflect his own glory. That's their, that is the key to their peace, and they enjoyed that peace. But he warns them even in the very beginning that there is a tree in the garden which is identified as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that they should therefore walk in submission and not partake of that tree because in the day that they do that, they will surely die. So we know from Genesis that they eventually did not abide in that station. So they, in many ways, forfeit now their peace. Their peace is lost. They sinned. And God cast them out of the garden, the place where the circumstances were to be consistent with them living in peace. Now they no longer have access with that. And God gives the reason. The reason is... If they stay there and they reach out and take from the tree of life, they shall live perpetually in this lost condition, this sinful condition, which would not be conducive to their peace. They've lost their peace. And the worst thing that could happen for them now is to live perpetually without that peace. They are not now living in fulfillment of the reason, the design for which they are created. And it would be the height of cruelty to require that they should live on eternally in that sort of, in that sort of condition. So I will put them out of the garden and cut off their access to this tree of life. So as not to perpetuate this misery in their lives, they forsook and forfeited their freedom, and along with that, their peace. Now, I think mankind from that point on has sought peace in other places because he knows it's absent in his own soul, but, he, but he's darkened in his understanding and he can't identify that. In fact, Romans tells us that the way of peace they have not known in chapter 3. So we don't know the way of peace. We just know it's absent. And God is merciful that we don't have access to eternal life in that state. So he puts them out of the garden. 
and they lost it. In fact, Romans 6.23 speaks well to, to our forfeiting of this peace as well when it says that the wages of sin is death. Now, certainly without access to the tree of life, uh, I think at that very point, their lives began to be ending. But I think the death spoken of in Genesis was primarily a spiritual death in the sense that there was a dying off to the sensitivity, to the purpose for our creation, our communion with God, our capacity to fellowship with God. Spiritually, we died to the things of God and sensitivity to the spirit and activity of God in our lives and to the purpose for which we were created. And in a very real sense, we usurped the throne in our own lives and became our own masters in our own minds. And, and we forfeited everything because of that. And such was the case of mankind. We lost our peace. As I mentioned in Romans 3.17, it gives an indictment there in regards to humanity in general. But one of the things in verse 17 is to say the way of peace we have not known. Notice he doesn't say specifically we, we have not known peace. He says there, he's quoting, but he's saying there, it is the way of peace is what we have lost the knowledge of. Not only have we lost our peace... And have we relegated it to mere circumstantial things, but we've lost the capacity to know the way to find it. We are truly dead in our trespasses. In Romans chapter 3, listen to this indictment of humanity. Paul speaking in terms of Jew and Gentile and concludes that they are all fallen and hopelessly lost in their sins. He says, in verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Speaking of the Gentiles or the Jews better than the Gentiles? He says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he bears witness. As it is written, there is none righteous, not a one, not even one. I mean, you think about that. This is what was forfeited. This is peace lost. There's none righteous anymore. In the garden, they were righteous in that they were fulfilling and walking with God in perfect fellowship without sin, distorting their views. They were fulfilling the purpose for which they were created. They were multiplying and filling the earth or, or set on a course to do that. They were, they were cultivating and exercising a stewardship and a growing dominion in creation, all to which was to reflect the glory of God. But they forfeited this, and as a result, from there to this day in them in and of themselves there is none righteous not even one more tragically there is none who understands even more tragically there is none there are none who seek after God that is not in, let me say this this morning because that is not in your nature you, you have forfeited that in the fall. We have inherited that from our father Adam, as it were. You do not naturally or by your own nature seek God. If you sought God at some point and it resulted in salvation, then it was a provocation by the Spirit of God to open your eyes to not only your need for God, but that God was the, the, the solution for what you did need. And so all seeking, I think, of men for God is of God. On our own, there is none who seeks after God. All of us have turned aside and together, all together, as a people, as a race, as a, as an, an, as a beings, we have become, as it were, useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat, he says, is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. I, that verse struck me as I was thinking again through it this morning because I was talking to Hope and I said, you think about it from the beginning of the fall to this present day, we have been constantly as a species at each other's throat. Every one of us have ingrained in us in the Imagio Dei this command to exercise dominion. And it has been distorted by the fall. And now the authority uh, behind it is the exaltation of self. And we establish our dominion by bringing into submission others. Not creation necessarily, but others. 
We exercise power and dominion and authority forcefully over others. And so it has been the plight of mankind. And there have been the bloodshed in regards to that and the killing of mankind created in the image of God for that singular distorted pursuit of dominion is heart-wrenching. Heart-wrenching. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And then this passage, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, we, so if we define peace as living out and fulfilling in perfect communion with God the purpose for which we were created, and we say that in sinning we forfeited that peace, then we can say that in this condition of sin, the pathway to that peace we have not known. It, is, it, is, it escapes us. It's not, Romans 1 talks about suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and indeed we do that. But what gets me is that we are in such a condition in our lostness that we don't even know the path to pursue the things that we sense we have lost, even if we can't identify precisely what they are. We just know that something is wrong with humanity in it, at its core. And over and over, every generation demonstrates the depravity of the human heart and soul. Every generation has its witnesses. We were walking in the cemetery up at Grassy Knob at, at our Christmas gathering yesterday. And time after time, all those graves going back, uh, back into the, some of them into the late 1700s, all the way back through there, walking through there, looking at all those dates. And I'm thinking to myself, and I said to Jessica and the kids, I said, every generation, generation has its witnesses of the impact of sin in their lives. Every generation lays to rest bodies that are dying. And you can put it out of your mind as long as you want to, but all around you are the witnesses that we are a fallen people and that death has entered in and that we have no remedy for that. And it is a depressing state of mind. So there's peace defined, but then there's that peace lost as well. We have forsaken and for, forfeited that peace. But I read it in Isaiah 9, 6, but there's also peace promised. Peace promised. He speaks of Jesus there defining him as the Prince of Peace. There is one coming, and all the way back, I asked one of the kids this morning, what is the good news, what is the good news, what is good about the good news, and one of them said that the serpent's head would be crushed, and they went all the way back to the beginning, found the first promise, said, that's pretty good news, and I said, well, isn't it striking that the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent is a baby, a, a human baby that entered into this world through the womb of a virgin mother, and is lying there bound in swaddling clothes and utterly helpless in regards to his physical abilities. He's going to crush the serpent's head. So it's promised. It's promised. And in fact, the incarnation and the nativity is the inauguration of the fulfillment of that promise. We went through a th study in Genesis and all through that Genesis, I kept referring back to the promise and how it was unfolding more clearly, more clearly throughout the generations and how God was bringing people into that promise. And they were all holding fast to that covenant, but it had never been delivered. It was always out front. It was coming. It was coming. And every generation got a clear view of its coming and what it would look like when it did come, but it had not arrived arrived yet. It was promised. In fact, I believe with all my heart that all the Old Testament saints who were saved were saved looking forward to the cross of Christ and all those who saved following that are looking back to the cross of Christ. There is no one entering into the kingdom of heaven on any other basis but the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whether they're looking from the past to that or whether looking from the future back to that. It is Christ central to our salvation. But the promise was made and God is faithful. And in the incarnation, one reason it's so special is because we see in flesh, in history, the manifestation finally of that promise. He is the promised one to come, the Messiah. And that is the claim made there. 
In Luke chapter 2, we've read the Christmas story this morning, but in Luke chapter 2, that's exactly what is said of him. The angels announce glory to the God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I was sharing with the kids this morning as well, but that's such a significant event because that is the commentary of the angelic host who have been in the presence of the glory of the one in the manger. And they, they have seen the radiance and they are created beings who have, who have an unobscured view of the glory and the majesty of the Messiah as the third person or the second person of the Godhead. They, they know him according to his person here. And they look down upon the earth and they see this one whom they know, the one in whose glory they have been living out their existence. And they look down and all that majesty and glory is confined now in this little bitty baby. And when they see that, they say, they, they make a commentary on that. Glory to God in the highest right there. And I was sharing with the kids and this really struck me. But the glory of the universe... We're reaching far out into the universe now and the telescopes are sending back pictures and we see those and we stand in all of the majesty and the glory of God manifesting itself in creation. We go to the Grand Canyon, we go to the mountains, we go to the coast, we see the mighty seas rage and we're humbled and quieted in silence before the power and majesty and, and the mightiness of our God. The angels know all of that. And there is glory evident in those things. Romans says that that's part of the truth that we suppress. We deny seeing His glory in those things. The angels know that's His glory. But what is their testimony in the incarnation? Taking all that glory and all those displays into account, they look down and see a little baby and God incarnate in the flesh and they say, that's the highest glory. That's greater glory than the Hubble telescope is sending you back. And you are silenced by the images you're seeing. If you've ever been at sea in a storm, you are silenced and humbled and trembling at the power and majesty of God's power over the seas. And the angel says, that's nothing in comparison to what's evident right there in that manger. That is God in human flesh. So peace was promised, yes, but peace is being inaugurated there. It is being brought into the world. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. In Ephesians and also in Romans, however, there is the peace that is absent. In Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 3, he says of us, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Think about this when you read this passage, because this is your life. When you were born into this world in sin, you were already predisposed by your very nature to sin. And as soon as you were old enough to do it deliberately, you started sinning. And you started acting selfishly and you wanted what you wanted, when you wanted, at the moment you wanted it, to the, to the capacity that you wanted it. Everything about you was designed to satisfy the, the lust of a, of a fallen heart. And he says of us, we were all dead in our trespasses and sin. And we all formerly walked in those according to the course of the world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And he says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. You are not here today and have not had that experience. If you're a Christian, you have, you have formerly had your experiences of walking this way. And if you are a young person and have not yet had the opportunities to sin yet, you have already walked in these ways too. And if you're not careful, you'll walk in those ways as you get older because it is part of who we are as fallen beings. This is the, this is the environment from which we spring and from which we are rescued out of in Jesus Christ. This is our experience. We were satisfying, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by very nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In Romans, or excuse me, in Romans chapter 8, 
Paul writes this in regards to that. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Listen to what he says here. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. So if I'm of this mind and I am by, of this mind by disposition and by nature, then I, am, then I am by nature a child of wrath and not experiencing peace. I have forfeited that. It was forfeited in the garden and it's been forfeited for mankind in his sinfulness down through the ages. Why? Because of our nature. Our minds do not dwell upon the things of God. It's upon the things of the flesh. And there is no life nor is there any peace in a mind that dwells there. So it's clear to me that our flesh and our peace is absent in our fleshliness. You just don't have it. And like I said, we fool ourselves. We get good jobs and good careers. We exercise. We stay healthy. We have good income. We have a nice home. We have all the things we need. And there are no problems, no difficulties in our lives generally that we face. There may be some slight things, but overall, generally, we are doing well in life. And I am at peace. Well, if you're without Christ, you are not at peace. You have satisfied yourself with a contemporary and a circumstantial peace. You have, you have worked hard and disciplined yourself to provide for the outward circumstances would be the most conducive to your happiness in this world. But in all of those things, you are pursuing to satisfy the desires that originate in the flesh and therefore are corrupt in their understanding in regards to how they are to be fully and rightfully satisfied. That's the condition that we are all in. Apart from Christ, there is no peace for us. But thankfully, there is a peace procured for us. In chapter 5 of Romans, Paul writes this beginning in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, which is, the, which is really where the title of the message came from. Because in my mind, I was thinking, it's a strange thing that God did. <laughs> he, <laughs> he provided for our peace by destroying us. <laughs> by conquering us, by overthrowing us, not by accommodating us. We didn't even know what peace was. We didn't even know what freedom was. We didn't know what joy was. We were satisfying those inclinations all in the distorted of our minds of our fallenness to satisfy those things on a horizontal fleshly level. And we were oblivious to the fact that we had a counterfeit happiness or a counterfeit satisfaction. We were blinded to it and had grown satisfied in our blindness that indeed we had these things. And the only, the only remedy for that old man is that he should die. God did not change his command in Genesis. And Paul repeats it in Romans. The wages of sin is death. That man must die. He, he cannot be reoriented. He cannot be, re, he cannot be reformed to know these things in full. He is by nature resistant and rebellious to these things. And that's where you and I have been. He goes on in that verse. But God demonstrates in his own love toward us that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, turn back to Ephesians uh, or forward to Ephesians as well because he speaks to that as well in Ephesians. Those uh, two sections are very, very, very similar. Listen to what he says in verse 4 through 10. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with or in Christ. He says, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So that peace is procured, what I'm getting at, is by the mercy of God, the grace of God in the person of Christ. 
in the person of Christ. In fact, he goes on to say that Christ himself is our peace. It's not just that he provides for our peace. He becomes himself our peace. Amazing, amazing realities. Peace procured there. And then there's a peace accessed. Uh, I've already touched on that. But in Romans 5, 1, it says, having been justified now by faith, we have what? Peace with God. So I conclude from that basis that there is no possibility of peace with God, which is the ultimate one against whom we are resisting and rebelling in our nature. The only way to have peace with God is by justification, which is the the divine decree of God that declares us just. Well, does he just do that arbitrarily? Does he, just, does he just look down on you and say, well, you know, they're only humans after all, so I'm going to just forget all these sins that they do, and I'm going to just, just call them righteous. Or there is, is there some exchange that has to place, take, take place? Is there some legal transaction by which we can be, be declared just? Well, there must be because Paul says here that only through this justification can we have peace with God. So if, you, so if you've assumed, I've heard people say this, even of lost people when they died, and people would say, I'm sorry to hear that they had passed on, and they said, well, we think they made peace with God. No, <laughs> no, you didn't. If you have peace with God, He made it with you by bringing about your justification. That's the, that's the need. That's the need because there is no reconciliation. There is no peace with God based upon what you've worked out with God. It's about what God has worked out in you. It's by His declaration of your righteousness as you are united to Christ by which you are brought into this relationship of being able or having the capacity for peace with God. You will not know it with all my heart. You will not know it any other way. That peace is accessed himself in Ephesians 2 14 it says again there that he is our peace which is an interesting passage as well he's talking about Jews and Gentiles in that passage uh, primarily and then he gets down near the end of the chapter and he talks about uh, in Christ Jesus the dividing wall the barrier was taken down and I and I think there's some relevance to it but I think he's speaking in terms of the the wall between Jew and Gentile which was the law essentially the Jews considered the Gentiles outside of that but then Paul says something interesting he says the so-called uncircumcised or those who are uncircumcised are called that by the so-called circumcised the implication is Paul thinks there's another kind of circumcision and the, and the so-called circumcisers are excluding you because you're uncircumcised. And then he introduces Christ. He says this of Jesus Christ. Remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Speaking, I think, primarily of Gentiles here. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And it seems to me like some people would say, well, it was the law that divided the Jew and the Gentiles. But he seems to go further. But he says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity or the hostility, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinance. Listen, that was, that was hostile against the Jew and the Gentile. The law didn't justify the Jew. The law made the Jew all the more guilty because it identified what sin was. The Gentile was already guilty in his ignorance. Romans 1, he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Both are guilty. And so there's something in the way of their reconciliation. And it is the law on both ends of those things. But Christ, having abolished the hostility of the law and commandments contained in ordinance, so that in himself he might make the two. He didn't make Gentile Jew, and he didn't make Jew Gentile. He made the two into one new being, which is created in Christ Jesus. And so what separated the Jew from reconciliation with God and what re- separated the Gentile from reconciliation God with God, Jesus took out of the way of both groups and in doing so brought both groups into one and presents them to God in himself. And to me, that is just glorious. 
He says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus, in this way, establishing peace. That's how he did it. And that in that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death that enmity. So that's our peace accessed. Jesus brings us, and this is important, the ordinance of the church demonstrated. It is in union with Christ that the old man who is under the condemnation of death and has never had that sentence removed from him dies. It is in Christ. He is united to Christ and in Christ he goes down into the grave in death. He is crucified with Christ, Romans 6.1 and following and then he is raised up to new life in Christ. Well, the law has been fulfilled because the wages of sin is death and he has died. But he can't die and live on unless he's united to Christ. But in Christ, he can die and be raised again to new life. Not because he has paid the debt in his death, but because in union with Christ, Christ has paid the debt and he is united to Christ and therefore rises up with Christ. Is Christ central to your faith? to your belief, to your salvation. He is. But let me tell you this this morning. During the Christmas season, He is essential for your hope, your, your, your peace, your joy, your love, your salvation. All these emphases that we are looking at during Advent, Christ is essential for those. That's why we are observing those during Advent. Preparing and cultivating our hearts to be reminded once again of what the nativity means and that we might step in with the angels and look at the event and say, there is the highest glory to God. That He has come to this earth in human flesh, to bring about our reconciliation. He himself is our peace. And then finally, there's peace known in Romans 8, 1 through 6. The summary of that is this, that the mind set upon the spirit, the mind set upon the spirit is life and peace. In this reconciliation, in this redemption, the, the mind is changed. Uh, we have been created anew. We, we don't have to yield to the fleshly mind. We have been given the mind of Christ. There is the spiritual mind. And, and that spiritual mind set upon the things of the Spirit brings about life and then peace. So here's the restoration of peace. Lost in the garden. Pursued with a fallen heart and fleshly desires all the days of our lives. But in Christ, redeemed, recreated as it were, created anew in Jesus Christ, given the proper passions, the proper desires, and the understanding of the truth. And now, again, in the Spirit, finding that peace which was forfeited. Are you looking for peace? Especially in this time of the year. I've struggled with this for years. Maybe you have. But I don't know. I've always found it difficult to be happy at Christmas. And some people say, well, that's because you're melancholic by nature. I find it difficult to feel happy because I feel that if I'm happy that I've overlooked the solemnity of it to get there because you think I should be happy. This may seem weird to you, but I am most happy in contemplating the events of the Incarnation when I am most mindful and most distressed uh, in regards to my own condition. <laughs> I, am, I am most aware of the light when I'm in the darkest room. And you say, and you say, I say you pejoratively, but men say, just be happy. Just enjoy the light. And I say, if I reflect upon my desperation, I see the light more clearly than you. You are seeing it, and therefore my joy is greater because I see the, the brightness of the light in the context of the darkness of my life, particularly my life when it is resting upon and depending upon my own sufficiency. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. And I have to touch on this. Peace known involves what I said in Romans 6, particularly one in the following few verses. 
in this reality that I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Paul makes it clear in that passage that if you haven't had that, you're not raised with him. If you go into the baptismal pool and you just blot out of your mind the going under the water and just concentrate on the coming up and you get out of the baptist and say, I was raised with Jesus. And you forget that you went under the water. You'll never know what being raised with Jesus is because you are trying to follow Jesus in the power of the old man who is still living. My greatest battle in the Christian life is to daily and moment by moment put to death the old man because he wants all the blessings of the new man without any of the obligations and any of the realities and the embracing of the truth of the, old man, of the new man. He wants the blessings the easy way. He wants the old man to be saved and enjoy the inheritance of the new man and it doesn't work that way. That's why I'm being crucified with Christ is critical. If I'm not dying to the old man in him, and then I'm not raised up to the new man in him. And I'm merely checking boxes in the Christian life as an old man. And I shudder at the thought of coming into the presence of God as that old man expecting salvation and expecting to enter into the kingdom because it will not happen. Peace can be known but it can be known only as we die in Christ. And I love this one too as well. In Galatians 5, 22, did you realize there that spirit is given as, as a part of the fruit of the spirit? Part of the fruit of the spirit. So, so it obviously tells me that this peace cannot, or at least the peace he's speaking of there, cannot be my experience in the work of the flesh or in the trying of the flesh or in the, in the efforts of the flesh. I cannot create a world in which everyone is subdued around me and I have no conflict or difficulties in my life and then call that peace because that's a peace of my own making and that is not a peace that is born as a fruit of the abiding Spirit of God dwelling within me. So at Christmas time, when we focus on peace and we think about peace, and especially as believers, as we celebrate that we have been provided for that peace in Christ himself, which was began and inaugurated in the incarnation and ultimately accomplished in the life, death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. So I just, I just pray, number one, that you'll be patient with me uh, when I don't seem too cheery throughout the Christmas season, it's not that I'm melancholic. It's not that I'm depressed in any way. I'm not grieving some great loss. It's just that my heart is hurting. When I consider the cost of the things I enjoy as a believer. And when I look at the baby in the manger, I don't feel, I don't feel nostalgia for the warmness and the cuteness of the situation. I see, a, I see God incarnate in human flesh, subject now to the will of the Father, yielding Himself up to the most vicious, vile hatred of the very ones He had come to save, and subjecting Himself to murder, crucifixion at the hands of those very people. And I realize that I am among them. And it grieves my heart. But when the grieving is past, the weight of what happened in the incarnation, in the life of Christ, brings me deep abiding joy. I don't run around with my hands in the air and waving and doing all sorts of crazy things. But you know what happens for me? I feel my feet getting strong and mounted, solid. And I feel... A foundation forming more solidly under my feet that is assuring me that the days will be difficult ahead. And there's one of the most difficult coming. It's when the shadows of death begin to creep in around you. And all that you believe will be challenged in that moment. Was it trustworthy? Was it faith? Was it something I should have believed in? In those moments, these convictions will, will carry me through that day. Because we took the time to contemplate our own depravity and the darkness of this world and compare that with Christ who comes into this world as the light of the world. I want us all at Christmas time, particularly, 
to know more fully the glory of the Christ who came in the flesh, who came in, in the incarnation. But I don't know if you will know that or experience that without spending some serious time contemplating just what your life would be without it. The kids' faces looked quiet and stunned this morning that I told them that if Christ does not come, the best you have is what's remaining of the rest of your life. But the end thereof is death, and not just death, but an eternal, unending, ongoing dying, complete separation from the things of God, from any hope whatsoever. That's what's left ahead of you if Christ doesn't come, because there's nothing we have in this earth or in us that we can offer up in exchange for our soul. Jesus says it himself, what shall man give in exchange for his soul? You'd give the whole world if you had it, but it wouldn't be enough wouldn't be enough. Only in the incarnation does Jesus come to be enough to redeem us to God. Amen. Stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for the gift of our salvation. And Lord, I think we are on the right track in regards to this peace for the closer we get to understanding that Christ himself is our peace, the, the more it seems that the enemy will work to destroy the circumstances around us by which we might have deceived ourselves into a false sense of security. And Father, I think that even in his doing of that, it is under the providential hand of grace that we might see more clearly that Jesus is indeed himself our peace. Lord, my prayer this morning is that everyone in this room knows Christ and the peace in, which is found in him. And Lord, I pray that we none of us leave this place today dependent in the least upon our righteousness or our good works or our right thinking. Lord, I pray that we might leave this place dependent upon Christ and Christ alone, that the nativity might be for us an occasion for solemn contemplation and also deep abiding joy. And that Christ has indeed come in the flesh. And that the baby in the manger grew and went to the cross, walking in perfect obedience. And there paid the price, paid the penalty, which was upon our heads, endured the condemnation, which was ours to endure alone. And Lord, I thank you that by your grace and by faith and through the miraculous union that we have been made in Christ to die to sin, die to the old man, and to be raised to new life. And I pray that we would live out as fully as possible the fullness of that new life while we're here on this earth in anticipation and hope and faith that we will one day know it in full and be complete in Jesus Christ. Bless those who come today, Father, as we have these few moments of quiet contemplation. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us by your truth and by your spirit and that we might be made able to respond for your own namesake and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.